Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. By 1895, 58-year-old Charles Chilton Moore had been arrested three times in relation to his atheist newspaper, Bluegrass Blade. The first arrest came in March of 1892, when Moore aired the scandals of Pastor J.S. Sweeney's church. In return, the pastor slapped him with a libel charge. It incensed Moore that a church could order someone to be arrested. He refused to even offer a defense in court as an act of protest. He was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to two months in jail. However, his imprisonment only brought more national attention to his cause and strengthened his resolve to continue publishing regardless of the consequences. Two years later, that resolve was tested again when another minister had him arrested, this time for blasphemy. In this instance, Moore wouldn't even pay the bond. He sat in jail for three months before the charges were entirely thrown out. It turned out blasphemy wasn't even a crime in Kentucky. Emboldened, Moore published an advertisement in 1895 that advocated for the use of contraception, one of the most contentious topics of the time. Moore was basically asking for a legal challenge. And he got one this time on the federal level. He was charged and convicted of mailing obscene materials. The judge offered Moore a choice. He could pay a huge fine, enough to bankrupt him and his newspaper, or he could promise to never publish anything considered obscene again. Surprisingly, Moore agreed to the latter. After this last court case, the editor moved his publishing shop out of Kentucky to the border town of Cincinnati, Ohio. He hoped this move would help him avoid future prosecutions. But the Ohio River would not protect him. And neither would the First Amendment.
How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're continuing our discussion of Charles Chilton Moore and his atheist prohibition newspaper, Bluegrass Blade. Last week, we followed Moore's early arrests for libel, blasphemy, and mailing obscene material, charges that were entirely brought by church leaders. This week, we'll examine the case that allowed Moore to do what he really wanted all along, challenge the boundaries of the First Amendment. When 57-year-old Charles Chilton Moore stood in front of Judge John Barr in July 1895, he still cut an imposing figure. His hair and beard were grayed, but his farmer's build made him the largest man in the room. However, he seemed to shrink a little at sentencing. He had to promise not to publish anything related to birth control methods again. In exchange, the judge wouldn't make him pay the fine. It was the first and only time he ever agreed to restrict the content of his writing. In truth, it wasn't much of a choice. The $1,000 fine levied would bankrupt him if he refused, and Bluegrass Blade would be silenced in totality. So Moore abandoned the contraception cause, turning his attention back to more traditional free-thought values advocating for prohibition, civil rights, and suffrage, and, of course, critiquing religion. Over the years, Baptist prohibitionist James Rucker wrote letters to Charles Moore, offering counterpoints to the anti-religion articles in Bluegrass Blade. Moore published Rucker's letters and then responded to them in the Letters to the Editor section of the paper. The two men had a contentious relationship, but also a mutual respect for the other one's ability to reason. Moore saw Rucker as a man of integrity, a value he honored above all else. That changed suddenly when, sometime between his arrest in 1895 and mid-1897, 68-year-old Rucker accepted a sizable donation, about $200,000 today, for his college and church. This gift came from a liquor distiller. To Moore, a prohibitionist accepting money from alcohol sales was the height of hypocrisy. Any courtesy he had previously shown his longtime sparring partner was gone. He blasted Rucker in the pages of Bluegrass Blade. Rucker was understandably embarrassed by the coverage. However, there was no legal action he could take. Nothing more said in the article was factually untrue, so he couldn't sue for libel. But Moore often published things that pushed the limits of decency. So Rucker simply bided his time, combing the pages of each new issue of The Blade, 
waiting for more to slip up. In the summer of 1897, Moore, now nearly 60, published an essay about the concept of free love. Free love was a topic widely debated in the freethought community. Moore had historically been against sex outside of marriage, but in this article he began reasoning in its favor. Moore ventured that if men and women were allowed to enjoy the intellectual qualities of each other prior to marriage, perhaps they should be able to enjoy sex in the same way. For Moore, this essay was simply asking the question of free love, not advocating for it. But this frank discussion of sexual relationships in the pages of a newspaper was unheard of in the region. One of the scandalized readers was F.R. Feland, a longtime supporter of The Blade. He wrote a letter to the editor chiding Moore for publishing the essay. Moore responded to the letter in the next edition on October 3, 1897. He doubled down, writing that he would rather not print the blade at all than censor his words. On the topic of sexual relations, he should print what everyone is thinking. James Rucker had finally gotten what he wanted. Not only had Moore written about sex outside of marriage, he just admitted he intended to continue doing so. Once again, he had gone too far. Rucker took the articles to federal court. He swore out a warrant for Moore's arrest for mailing obscene materials. For the second time in two years, Charles Chilton Moore was arrested on obscenity charges. His printer, James Hughes, was also arrested. F.R. Feland, the same man who helped ignite this firestorm with his letter to the editor, offered to represent both men pro bono. James Hughes accepted the help. Moore did not. He was going to represent himself. The trial was held in Cincinnati, Ohio in February 1899. In his opening statement, Prosecutor and District Attorney William Bundy referred to 62-year-old Moore as the editor of a free love paper. Moore jumped to his feet to object. His paper had run only two pieces on free love in the 15 years since its first issue. The characterization was inaccurate. Presiding Judge Albert Thompson told him to sit down. He was not allowed to object to an opening statement. The trial had barely begun, and Moore had already annoyed the judge with this violation of courtroom decorum. It was an omen of what was to follow. After his opening, Prosecutor Bundy called his first witness. It was the same man who had sworn out the warrant against Moore, 71-year-old pastor James Rucker. He restated the evidence against Moore identifying the two issues of Bluegrass Blade that advocated for free love. There was nothing to object to. Bundy was simply presenting the truth. Therefore, Moore had only one goal as he rose to cross-examine Rucker. He was determined to dispel the characterization that the Blade was a free love paper, as charged by the prosecution. But Rucker was evasive, he claimed he didn't know what the paper advocated 
Even though anyone in Kentucky could have answered that it was a pro-atheism and prohibitionist paper, the harder Moore pressed Rucker, the more the prosecution objected. When it was clear Moore was not going to get the answers he was after, Judge Thompson stopped the cross-examination. He dismissed Rucker from the stand. Moore, frustrated, blurted out that if Rucker would tell the truth, he could prove his case. A defendant arguing with a judge was not something Thompson would tolerate. After a lecture from the bench about courtroom decorum, Thompson told Moore he could question Rucker again when it was his turn to present his case. When the prosecution rested a few hours later, Moore did just that. He stood and called James Rucker back to the stand as his first witness. But Rucker wasn't there. Up next, Charles Moore attempts to argue his case without his sole witness. Now back to the story. In February of 1899, 62-year-old Charles Chilton Moore defended himself against federal obscenity charges. These were the most serious charges he ever faced, and the stakes were high. A conviction could mean a large fine, jail time, or both. Moore opened his defense by attempting to call his accuser, James Rucker, back to the stand. But the man was gone. Prosecutor William Bundy explained that Rucker lived 70 miles away. He had already left for the return journey half an hour before. Moore was furious. He had been told by Judge Thompson that he could question Rucker again, but the court let him leave the city. Moore demanded that a court officer chase after Rucker, but the judge denied his request. It was time to proceed with his case. Unfortunately, James Rucker was Moore's only witness. He rested his case without calling any witnesses, and Judge Thompson recessed court for lunch. During the break, a man named Dr. John Wilson approached the prosecutor, District Attorney William Bundy. Dr. Wilson was a member of the Free Thought community and had watched the trial all morning. He was also a longtime subscriber to The Blade. Wilson explained to Bundy that the newspaper was not a free love paper, as Bundy told jurors. The only two articles that seemed in favor of free love were the two Rucker complained about. Out of fairness, Wilson hoped Bundy would clarify this in court. When Bundy began his summation after lunch, he did just this. He told the jury he had just learned that Bluegrass Blade was not, in fact, a free love paper. He said that he had not meant to mislead them. But then Bundy held up the two copies of the paper for the jury. He said even if the paper didn't usually advocate free love, those particular issues certainly did. He proceeded to read to the jury the most salacious excerpts from those essays. Then Bundy read other articles in the paper to the jurors, ones that had nothing to do with the obscenity charge, but railed against religion. In one article, Moore called holy figure King Solomon a damned old son of a bitch. Bundy believed the combined weight of this collection of articles 
was enough to make the jury indict Moore on blasphemy charges. However, Moore had not been charged with blasphemy. In fact, there were no federal blasphemy laws to charge him with. These additional articles were brought in solely to prejudice the Christian men on the jury against the defendant. But Judge Thompson didn't chide the district attorney for his tangential claims of blasphemy charges, and Moore didn't know enough about the law to object. When prosecutor William Bundy sat down, Moore finally had his chance to defend himself. He faced the jury to give his summation, but in an instant, his heart sank. Few of the men on the jury bothered to hide their disdain. Their minds were already made up, and Moore knew he wasn't going to win the case on the facts. His only hope was to try to elicit some sympathy. He tried to make the jury see him as a principled citizen. Maybe then they would find it difficult to send him away to prison. He told them about his life, his farm, his wife, his responsibilities. He looked them each in the eye, trying to connect. And then he watched as one of their heads bobbed, their eyes closed, asleep. Moore looked over at the judge, but Thompson was no help either. His head was resting on his hand and his eyes were closed too. When the judge woke up from his nap 15 minutes later and realized Moore was still talking, he cleared his throat to interrupt. How much more time would he need? Moore replied he was just getting started, but agreed to stop whenever Thompson told him he had to. Thompson allowed him to continue, but asked him to stay on topic. Moore continued his closing, this time focusing on the content of his paper. After 15 minutes, Thompson cut him off again. He was out of time. One trial observer, Dr. John Wilson, later wrote that he had never before seen a defendant treated so poorly. The jury deliberated for just five minutes. They found Charles Moore guilty of obscenity. As they led him to the holding cell in an adjacent room, Moore yelled, You are not shackling me. You are shackling American liberty. The next day, a calmer Moore returned to court to hear his sentence. He was allowed to make a statement before Judge Thompson ruled on his punishment, but to do so, he had to be sworn in. Typically, this oath to tell the truth is made with one hand on the Bible. But when the court officer took a step towards Moore, holy book in hand, the atheist refused to take an oath that required him to swear to a God he didn't believe in. He wanted to affirm instead. Giving an affirmation has the same effect as swearing an oath. It's a promise to tell the truth. Though this right to affirm was granted by the Constitution, Judge Thompson referred to Moore's request as trifling. He begrudgingly ordered that Moore be affirmed and let him speak. Moore told the judge that the obscenity charge against him was false, but as he was found guilty, he asked for mercy. He wouldn't be able to pay a hefty fine. Because he refused to raise horses for betting, 
or sell corn to liquor distillers, his farm made very little money. He also asked that whatever the punishment, it would fall on him rather than on his printer, James Hughes, who would be tried later on the same charge. Judge Thompson told Moore that he knew he was breaking the law when he printed his paper. Moore simply replied that he was proud of everything he had done. Then the judge sentenced Moore to two years in the Ohio State Penitentiary. The sentence sent shockwaves through the room, but no one was more alarmed than Charles Moore. He was always willing to sit in lockup for a few months at a time to draw attention to his fight for freedom of religion and the press. But two years in state prison at the age of 62 was another matter entirely. Moore was taken from the courtroom to a side room where his family and supporters could visit him for a few minutes. Among them was Moore's 25-year-old son, Leland. Moore saw the shock and anger in Leland's eyes, a mirror of his own. He begged his son not to attempt to retaliate against Rucker, as he feared he might. He told him to go back to the farm and help take care of the family. One supporter who did not stay to talk to Moore was Dr. James Wilson. Instead, he immediately went to the office of D.A. William Bundy to ask how he could file an appeal on Moore's behalf. The prosecutor suggested Wilson find a lawyer to help him, but warned they didn't have a chance. Moore had been convicted because he was guilty of the crime. Dr. Wilson immediately hurried off to meet with members of the Ohio Liberal Society, a free thought organization. They quickly pooled money in the hope that they could get Moore out on bond pending an appeal. Dr. Wilson rushed back to court an hour later, money in hand, but Moore was gone, already on his journey to the prison in Columbus, over 100 miles away. But if Judge Thompson or DA William Bundy thought a prison cell would put a muzzle on Charles Moore, they were sorely mistaken. Without a farm to run, Moore found he had even more time to write. Because his printer, James Hughes, was let off with a light fine, he continued publishing Bluegrass Blade. During Moore's first months in prison, in addition to writing essays for the Blade, he penned a memoir titled Behind the Bars 31498. The digits indicated his prison identification number. While Moore blackened pages in prison, the Ohio Liberal Society worked just as hard to file for an appeal. They needed to find an error in the proceedings that they could use to mount a retrial. Bundy's false blasphemy accusations may have been an easy target, Unfortunately, Moore didn't object to them during the trial. Had he objected and the judge overruled him, he could have appealed the judge's decision, but he couldn't appeal his own decision not to object. Finally, they settled on the judge and juror falling asleep during Moore's closing statement as the basis of their argument. It was the clearest error they could find. But before the appeal was filed, another path out of prison appeared. This effort was spearheaded by an unlikely ally, ordained minister Robert Charles O'Hara Benjamin. 
Benjamin, in addition to being a minister, worked as editor of Lexington Standard, one of the most notable African-American newspapers of its day. Though the exact reasons why are unknown, Moore felt Benjamin's coverage of his trial was unfair and biased. In typical Charles Moore fashion, he responded from behind bars with bitter criticism in the pages of The Blade. Benjamin read Moore's response and issued a genuine public apology. He pointed out that when Moore was a young minister before the Civil War, he denounced slavery even though his church supported it. Benjamin wrote that anyone who spoke against slavery before the war should be regarded as a friend. Moore wasn't just against slavery, it was the first issue that sowed his doubts about the Bible and led him to atheism. In his Church of Christ faith, Moore was taught to take every word of the Bible as fact, including 1 Timothy, which commanded those who are enslaved to respect their masters. They are to serve kind owners well on account of that kindness. It goes on to say, quote, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Through the lens of the Church of Christ, not only was slavery allowed according to the Bible, but it was against the Bible to teach otherwise. Moore couldn't see how a perfect book could support such a horrible practice as slavery. Eventually, discrepancies like these made him turn away from his faith. As a minister, Lexington Standard editor Robert Benjamin disagreed with Moore's evangelical atheism and rude manner. But as a man seeking progress for his brothers and sisters, he could respect that the first thing in the Bible that Moore objected to was slavery. Benjamin circulated a petition to ask for a presidential pardon on the grounds that Moore was treated unfairly at his trial, echoing the sentiments of the Ohio Liberal Society. President William McKinley declined to pardon Moore, but he did commute his sentence to six months, with one month off for good behavior. On July 7, 1899, 62-year-old Moore was released from prison and returned to Lexington. Five months in prison did nothing to dissuade him from publishing what he wanted. In fact, it had the opposite effect. Moore was more determined than ever to fight for his First Amendment rights. On November 26, 1899, just five months after his release, Moore published an essay written by well-known atheist M. Greer Kidder, titled The Virgin Mary. The article mocked the idea of the virgin birth of Jesus and questioned if, instead of the miraculous conception, Jesus was actually the illegitimate love child of Mary and a Roman soldier. While he was lambasted by some readers as blasphemous, Moore knew that Kentucky didn't have any laws against blasphemy, so he published without fear. But just because Kentucky didn't have these laws didn't mean that Moore felt protected. The law would find a way to come after him, and he would get another shot at the system.
Up next, Charles Moore tries to get back into federal court. Now back to the story. 62-year-old Charles Chilton Moore had spent nearly a decade in and out of court by the end of the 19th century. He lost more often than he won, but he was determined to push the limits of the First Amendment. His writing had been considered blasphemous, libelous, and obscene. To Moore, it was no worse than many stories printed in the pages of the Bible. In the very early days of 1900, Moore wrote to the federal judge overseeing the Western Kentucky District. He asked if he could market, through the mail, a book entitled Extracts from the Bible, the King James Version. Asking permission to print and mail something wasn't normal procedure, so Judge Walter Evans likely would have been suspicious from the start. And Charles Moore's reputation preceded him. Familiar with the detailed accounts of rape and incest in the Old Testament, Evans had a good idea which excerpts would be included in the publication. Moore intended to find out if Christians had more of a right to mail the Bible than an atheist had. He planned to publish and mail lewd excerpts from the Bible to orchestrate a federal court case. However, his plan changed when fate intervened. Or rather, when James Zachary, C.L. Braxton, James Griffith, and J.O. Seahorn intervened. In February of 1900, the four men individually requested a specific back copy of Bluegrass Blade. They wanted the November 26, 1899 issue with M. Greer Kidder's essay lampooning the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It should have seemed odd to Moore to receive four separate requests at the same time for the same past issue of The Blade. It's possible he found this suspicious, but chose to send the copies anyway. When the men received their copies on February 16th, they filed a complaint against Moore, alleging they had been sent obscene materials in the mail. Then on February 22nd, a warrant for Moore's arrest was issued by Judge Walter Evans on four charges, one for each paper mailed. Both Moore and his printer, James Hughes, were arrested. Moore, 62 years old and tired of jail by this point, immediately posted bond. The prosecution planned to approach these charges from two angles. The first would be based on the article about the Virgin Mary. The second was a claim that Moore had violated the court order from his first obscenity conviction by mailing additional obscene materials. If he was found guilty, he would be forced to pay the $1,000 fine from the previous conviction, in addition to a fine from the new charges. This would surely bankrupt Moore, and finally, mark the end of Bluegrass Blade. Once again, his fellow freethinkers came to his defense, led by Josephine Henry, a well-known reformer in Kentucky. The committee published a proclamation in a number of freethought and infidel papers across the country, asking for donations for Moore's legal fund. The freethinkers framed Charles Moore's trial as a fight they were all invested in. Should he lose, all freethought publications could come under fire. 
Soon, they'd successfully raised enough money to hire two experienced defense attorneys for Moore and Hughes. On October 3, 1900, Charles Chilton Moore entered the courthouse with his new lawyers by his side. District Attorney Hill was determined to convict Moore of obscenity and have his suspended sentence reinstated. As had happened at Moore's previous trials, the main witnesses against him were the men who complained about his articles. Moore's attorneys, however, opened their case with a motion to dismiss. They supported the request by attacking the prosecution's claim that Moore was in violation of a previous court order. They even submitted a deposition from the retired judge who issued the order, stating that Moore had fulfilled his obligations. They also argued that the article in question wasn't obscene. It was blasphemous and Moore had a right under the First Amendment to publish and distribute blasphemous materials. After hearing the defense's argument to dismiss, Judge Evans paused to consider the matter. Moore held his breath. He knew from his past cases that a Christian jury would always find him guilty. His only hope was to keep the decision out of the hands of those 12 men. Then, Judge Evans dismissed all the charges against Moore and Hughes. In his written decision, Evans wrote that what Moore published was offensive and unpopular. However, the freedom to express an idea cannot be determined by how politely it is conveyed or how well it is received. Judge Evans went on to say that the Supreme Court had determined it was not enough that the materials published were obscene, lewd, or lascivious alone. They must also invite obscene, lewd, or lascivious behavior. Evans was referring to the case of Dunlop v. United States, which had been upheld in the Supreme Court just three years earlier. In that case, Joseph Dunlop was convicted on obscenity charges when his paper, the Chicago Dispatch, ran personal ads for brothels. His conviction was upheld because Dunlop was not merely publishing obscene materials, he was inviting lewd behavior by including addresses of the brothels in question. But Charles Moore's critiques on religion, no matter how crude, did not encourage any action on the reader's part. Judge Evans stressed that his ruling must be based on the Constitution. He wrote, if the Christian religion is divine, it can withstand all attacks. But whether divine or not, the Constitution of the United States gives to all the right to discuss it from whatever standpoint they please. And with that ruling, Charles Chilton Moore was free. After eight years of legal battles, Moore finally received the outcome he wanted his right to criticize religion and the Bible was upheld in court. He was never again arrested for what he printed. Moore continued publishing Bluegrass Blade, influencing and challenging freethinkers in Kentucky and beyond. He remained the editor of the paper until his death in 1906. Charles Chilton Moore wasn't the last person to challenge blasphemy laws in the United States. 
1951, the New York Board of Regents refused to allow the short film The Miracle to be shown in theaters. The Italian film, directed by Roberto Rossellini, depicted a young woman who believed herself to be the Virgin Mary. The movie was deemed anti-Catholic and sacrilegious. The distributor of the film, Joseph Burstyn, sued. The case made it to the Supreme Court in 1952, and the court ruled that motion pictures are art and therefore protected by the First Amendment. In the court's decision, they wrote, We hold only that, under the First and Fourteenth Amendments, a state may not ban a film on the basis of a censor's conclusion that it is sacrilegious. Though blasphemy laws remain on the books in half a dozen states, the last blasphemy conviction in the United States was appealed 70 years after Charles Moore's last trial. Irving West was convicted in Maryland for disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, and blasphemy in 1968. The blasphemy charge stemmed from words he shouted at the officer while resisting arrest, in which he took God's name in vain. While West took his consequences for the first two charges, he appealed the blasphemy conviction. The Maryland Court of Appeals overturned his conviction, ruling the blasphemy law unconstitutional. They determined that on the topic of religion, the court must remain neutral. This ruling was the outcome Charles Chilton Moore sought in the court system 70 years earlier. He endured five arrests and four trials in eight years. He spent a year in jail, all combined, in his fight for separation of church and state. He paved the way for individuals to be judged based on their crimes rather than their beliefs. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.